0: Hi everybody, Liam here. Before we start today's episode, I just want to give a quick shout out to one of my favorite East Bay breweries. It's a great little spot called Hoi Poloi. My buddies, Fiat and Yap, started it a few years ago. And uh, even though the taproom is temporarily closed, they're still selling their really delicious beer to go. The selection is always changing, but they've got it all. IPAs, porters, Belgium style, And they brew it right here in Oakland. You can order four packs or 32-ounce growlers for pickup or gift cards. You know the deal. So if you're a beer drinker and you want to support one of my favorite local breweries, check out their website or their Instagram page, Hoi Ploi Brewing. That's H-O-I-P-O-L-L-O-I Brewing. Cheers. Okay, on to the show. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past.
1: (laughs) Let's begin.
2: begin. So we were all there downtown, and we couldn't get to work, and immediately a carnival kind of attitude hit us. The trucks, the... the men were driving they just left them right at that spot they didn't even pull them to the curb well the the first thing that hit us in this whole thing was we got a good excuse we can't get to work and we're here so so it was kind of a carnival
0: that was the voice of stan weir the reason why stan couldn't get to work that morning was because of a spontaneous eruption that would come to be known as the Oakland General Strike.
2: We were going into bars and saying, no hard liquor, serve beer and wine if you must, but mainly beer, and you can stay open only if you bring your jukebox out in front and turn it on loud. And we were dancing seven o'clock in the morning, men and women, (laughs) and joking and so on, uh, feeling like, you know, God, freedom. That pistol down babe lay that pistol down pistol mama lay that pistol down oh, Earlier
0: that morning the police inadvertently triggered this massive protest when they beat up a group of picketers and set up machine guns on Broadway the cop's goal was to break the strike of a few hundred department store workers mostly women, Instead of clearing the area, the opposite happened. A hundred thousand people swarmed downtown. The year was 1946. The most popular song at the time was Pistol Packin' Mama by Bing Crosby and the Andrews sisters. The jukeboxes played it over and over again, while thousands danced in Latham Square, under holiday wreaths hanging from the lampposts. This next interview was recorded more than half a century after the strike. But Eve Schaff still gets excited, looking back at that morning.
3: So one morning when I got a call, real early in the morning, must have been about 5 o'clock, uh, from a member of my union saying, get down, there's a big blow-up, people are gathering around the cons and Hastings, uh, they did run, run some trucks in, and the city protected them, and they unloaded, and they've stocked up cons again.
0: Cons and Hastings were two department stores at the center of the strike. For weeks, picketers had been trying to stop delivery trucks from dropping off goods.
3: So that was, you know, it was a real wake-up call, and I got out of bed and got on maybe the last bus to left Palameda, where I was living got over into Oakland and it wasn't long before they stopped this bus and said you'll have to get out here because we're not going any further. So we got out and and walked up to where we knew knew it was and there were people gathering. It was getting to be a very large crowd by the time I got there. And I stayed with that crowd as much as I could over the next several days as, as this went on and developed. I've never seen a group of people that was so unif- unified behind their own idea and their determination to win and the feeling that they could. We all felt confident, we felt strong, and it's a, it, an experience I will never forget.
0: While walking the picket lines, Eve Schaff met her future husband, Val. Unfortunately, the Oakland general strike wasn't as successful as Eve's love life. A lot has changed since 1946. Laws have been passed to expand civil rights, women's rights, LGBTQ rights, which is why it's so mind blowing to consider that compared to the 1940s, your average worker today in 2020 has less power in many ways than they did 75 years ago. And lately things have been getting worse. In the last four years alone, The Department of Labor has rolled back dozens of regulations created to protect employees from things like wage theft or even getting killed on the job. Whether you work at Tesla or Facebook or in a meatpacking plant or a fast food restaurant, the laws are increasingly stacked against you. And a big part of why it's been so hard for workers to push back is because of something that happened as a direct result of the Oakland general strike. The, uh, I guess I'll just call them the 1%, they saw what happened here, and they wanted to make sure it could never, ever happen again. And so far, it hasn't. But that doesn't mean it never will. Today on East Bay Yesterday, the Oakland general strike. I'm your host, Liam O'Donohue. If you have a boss, you're going to want to stay tuned for this one.
4: So imagine yourself living in 1946, and you're a worker and you're say, you know, you're 30 years old, let's just say. And so most of your adult life, Uh, has been in a period where you don't really have the ability to spend much money, uh, where your work uh, has been very shaky.
0: That's Professor Eric Loomis, the author of A History of America in Ten Strikes.
4: And so, you know, the Great Depression starts in 1929. Uh, You have a decade or more, really 12 years of Of great poverty in America, where unemployment had skyrocketed, uh, where people were desperate, and you didn't really have any money to spend. World War II comes along, and that uh, changes that significantly, right? Everybody has work in World War II. Unemployment is less than 1%, but there's nothing to spend the money on. Um, You know, because we're sacrificing for the war, there's no new cars, you know, being made, etc. And you are also, you're gaining more money, but prices are also rising too. And in many cases, the prices are rising faster than your wages.
0: To be specific, the price of food, for example, went up about 30% between 1945 and 46, while the salaries of most workers stayed flat. So you have this enormously pent-up consumer demand.
4: On top of that, what has happened beginning in the 1930s and then really establishing itself with much greater force during World War II was the rise of unions. That workers had taken advantage of the terrible economic situation in which they faced – had elected pro-labor politicians in Washington, particularly President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who pushed for comprehensive labor legislation that allowed, allowed workers to join unions, and they do by the millions. And then during World War II, because the, you know, the government is primarily concerned that there are no strikes that would get in the way of production, They basically forced companies that had not wanted to accept unions to accept the unions uh, so that you have labor stabilization through the war. And so unions were much more powerful by 1946 than they had been at the beginning of the war, And so they had more money and more power and more political influence than they ever had before. Combined with workers who really wanted money to spend, they wanted rights on the job, uh, and they were ready to act because they had not been allowed to strike, at least not legally, for the previous four years. So it's all of this pent-up demand, pent-up anger, and pent-up activism that really comes to fruition in that uh, enormously important year of 1946.
0: After the war, corporate profits were higher than ever. But workers weren't getting a bigger piece of this ever-growing pie. Remember, their real buying power was actually shrinking due to inflation. This frustration led to the biggest wave of labor activism in American history. In 1946, more than 5,000 strikes, involving 4.5 million workers, erupted in coal mines, auto plants, and rail yards across the nation. Most of these striking workers were men, but not in Oakland, at least at first. Here's Joe Chode, the editor of the East Bay Labor Journal, from an archival interview with KPFA Radio.
1: I think the war gave an impetus to women for their individual freedom and individual right to be a wage earner. And I think that that's one of the reasons that they turned to the, uh, uh, to the labor movement and uh, to get organized. These women were used to paychecks, you know, and, and, and they, they were out, and they were free, and they were working, and they realized what money meant, uh, because before the old man took care of that, you know, in a, in, a, in a lot of respects. He was the wage earner, but these women got out, they got a sense of freedom, uh, they belonged to unions, you know, the wages were good, the overtime was good, they made good money. So then, after the war was over, the, the balloon kind of burst, the shipyards closed, where else to go? department
0: stores Um, while we're in this building because I don't know how long we're gonna be able to stay in here we didn't ask permission but uh, can you explain where we are and why we've chosen uh, this location to begin the interview and then maybe you can get into the Oakland history
5: sure sure so this is what had been Khan's department store now Khan's department store was actually started in 1879 but this building was built in 1913 And it's a really beautiful building, and it was the biggest, fanciest department store in the East Bay, and since at the time, this was the heart of Oakland. All the streetcars converged at Latham Square where Telegraph merges with Broadway, and this was the fancy place to come shopping. And it's significant because it was one of the stores where mostly women retail clerks try to organize.
0: That's Gifford Hartman, a local historian who leads walking tours about the Oakland general strike. And we did get kicked out of the rotunda building, as it's now called, a few minutes into that interview. So I'm glad I got that soundbite. Anyway, here's one of the reasons why those retail clerks were trying to join a union.
5: Cons really was a big department store. I've never really got an accurate count on how many people worked here. I've seen figures between 425 up to 800. Of course, in any kind of work, you have turnover. So they created an institution called the Ready Room. The ready room was in the basement. So a woman who didn't have a permanent position would come to the ready room, wait around, and see if she could pick up work because somebody called in sick or somebody was out, you know, for whatever reason. But if they didn't need them, they would just kick them loose sometime during the later day without any pay.
0: You know, it's amazing when you're telling me about all these, structures that owners had in place to kind of keep workers in this precarious state where they never know if they're going to work or not never know how much they are going to get paid or not because it just sounds so similar to basically the way the way that the gig economy functions today
5: yeah they want to make us as unstable and willing to work for whatever they'll give us and that was kind of the demand of the the department store clerks it was actually called the retail and specialty employee clerks union 1265.
0: okay hold up a sec before we talk about how the store owners tried to stop workers from joining this union, I want to back up real quick. Because at first glance, maybe this whole ready room situation doesn't sound that outrageous, right? Well, here's why it's unacceptable for a store or any company to keep a stockpile of unpaid extra workers in the basement just in case they might need them at some point. I worked for a business that did this. and. There's no worse feeling than getting up at six in the morning and sitting around, waiting for work all day, and still going home with empty pockets. Psychologically, it's devastating. No one should have to go through that. And even if you are one of the full-time workers, the boss has this leverage because you both know that if you don't kiss ass, you could end up in the ready room too. (laughs) When I was 15 years old, I had a boss, a middle-aged man, that would make me buy him an egg McMuffin. Or he wouldn't give me work that day. <laughs> Still pisses me off. Um, and besides getting rid of the ready room, workers had one other demand. Here's another interview from the KPFA archives, this time with a man named Al Kidder. And I'm sorry, I couldn't find an audio clip of any of the female workers, which would have been a better
1: representation of this struggle. If I was working in a shoe department, and I was making, uh, I believe, uh, $28 a week at that time. And uh, we had union shoe stores right around cons. Um And, you know, working in the area, you uh, invariably talk to people in the other stores. And I found out the union stores were making in the area of around $42 a week. And um, all I could think of was the fact that if we got the union there, I'd make 42 instead of 28 <laughs> And I think this was basically the reason for all the people.
0: Maybe you've never had a union job. Maybe you've even heard bad things about unions. Some of that might be fair. We'll get to it later. But here's why everybody should be grateful for unions. Overtime pay. Child labor laws. Compensation for injury or, God forbid, death on the job. Uh, The fact that your boss isn't allowed to keep you locked up inside your workplace weekends. All those things exist because unions fought for them. And they weren't easy fights either. You think factory owners wanted to pay overtime or stop hiring eight-year-olds to work 12-hour shifts? No. Time and time again, the bosses killed people, literally gunned them down for making those demands. Labor history is littered with massacres. But workers didn't give up. And eventually they scraped out a few wins. The workers at Cannes and Hastings, they weren't asking for much. They tried to join the retail clerk's union because they wanted a living wage and they didn't want people sitting unpaid in a basement all day. But for the store's owners, this was a threat, one that needed to be crushed. Coming up next, media manipulation, police brutality, a bit of anti-semitism, and a split on the left. Hmm, sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? that I've been telling this story so far kind of makes it sound like a disagreement between workers at a few stores and their bosses. But here's why this conflict was a lot bigger than that. The owners of Kahn's and Hastings were part of a group called the Retail Merchants Association, or the RMA. And the RMA was a coalition of nearly 30 downtown shops who were all trying to stop their employees from unionizing. At the time, Oakland's political power structure In other words, the mayor, city council, most important businessmen, the DA, police chief, they were all conservative Republicans. And this structure was really well-coordinated. It even had a name, the Noland machine. It was named after Joseph Noland, the owner of the Oakland Tribune, and his son, William Noland, a US Senator. For decades, this one family not only ruled Oakland, But they were one of the most influential political dynasties in the country. The Tribune Tower wasn't just called the Tower of Power, because that rhymes. The Nolans pretty much handpicked who sat where in City Hall. So, the Retail Merchants Association, the RMA, they knew that if two big downtown stores could be unionized, well, that was a slippery slope because then all these other workers would be organizing for better wages and conditions. So when nearly all the workers at Hastings, and about 75% of the workers at Cannes, told their bosses that they were joining the Retail Clerks Union, the owners refused to negotiate. Now, on the other side of this battlefield, these workers weren't standing alone. The Retail Clerks Union was part of a group called the American Federation of Labor, or AFL, which included unions representing about 100,000 workers in Alameda County alone. And they saw this fight as a huge threat to their survival, too. Because if they lose this fight, what's to stop every other business from following the RMA's playbook, right? The stage is set for a major showdown. Again, Gifford Hartman.
5: Hastings went out first on October 23rd. And then the agitation was rising. At cons, management fired one of the women organizers. And so they decided to go out on October 31st. And in Oakland, I- And
0: when we say going out, you're talking about right here at the intersection of basically Telegraph and Broadway, one of the most visible sections of all of downtown, groups of picketers holding up signs, basically saying, you know, we're fighting for our rights, don't cross this line.
5: Absolutely. Again, the key route system with streetcars and buses, all of them went through, it was like the, it was the hub. And by doing that, everybody in town knew it. But already, there'd been labor coordination. The Teamsters, you know, the people who drive trucks. Now you think they're kind of atomized, but they also deliver stuff to all the different stores and they get the scuttlebutt and they have a tradition of being militant. So the, the Teamsters knew that they were the core or the key the key link to actually making the strike effective. So they just stopped delivering goods. That was super effective.
0: Hard to run a store when you don't have shipments coming in.
5: Don't have shipments coming in. And then it went down. All the labor groups honored that. All the labor groups supported that. The Alameda County Central Labor Council started taking a $1 per month dues assessment to support a strike fund, to support those mostly women clerks on strike. Okay, that's going on other groups. And Double Oakland had been, was growing through the Warriors into a bigger, larger and larger Black population. Sanctioned the strike didn't cross the picket line, so all, no labor, no progressive groups are crossing the picket lines. We're going through the into the month of November. The short, the store, you know, they're not selling much, and what they little they have is not getting sold. So the city elites, the owners of cons, the owners of Hastings, the retail merchants association, the chamber of commerce types, the the city police and the mayor get together and they say, we're going to have to break this strike.
0: You know, who else was there with the cops and politicians and business leaders, the publishers of Oakland's two biggest newspapers, the Tribune and the post inquirer, all these bigwigs held a meeting at the district attorney's office. And (laughs) you can practically smell the cigar smoke wafting out from between the cracks of the heavy wooden doors. The plan they hatched wasn't very innovative, but it has proven remarkably effective over the years. Here's the strategy in two words, brute force. Again, Eric Loomis, the author of A History of America in 10 Strikes.
4: So for most of, of American labor history, You know, the police have existed as a tool for corporate power. Um, And you see this over and over again. There are very, very few instances in which the police uh, ever act in a way that is anything less than subservient to corporate interests. And what this has led to is a situation that if the state wants to crush a strike enough, it will. And there's not much that, that labor radicalism or whatever democracy, whatever your solution to our labor problems are, can necessarily do about that. That's going to succeed. And the police are the are the shock troops uh, of this. And so whether it is you know in the older, more violent days shooting workers, or it is escorting scabs into the workplace, it's busting up, uh, you know, busting up food stalls, let's say, that are dedicated to helping feed the strikers, which is one of the things that does happen in in, in Oakland, Um, then, you know, what that is going, what that's going to do is it's going to make things much, much more difficult for you as a worker to succeed in your labor action. And so, you know, the police have, has, including in Oakland, um, have largely acted in this way throughout American
0: history. On the morning of December 1st, more than 250 Oakland police, armed with shotguns and tear gas, showed up to clear out the picketers. The cops' goal was to get rid of the strikers so the delivery trucks could restock the department stores. Joe Shoday of the East Bay Labor Journal was there that morning.
1: And uh, they, they all marched over push this down the alley, push this back, push this out to 17th Street, push this all the way down to Franklin, push this down to there, push down to 12th Street, set up machine guns right in the middle of, of, the, of the square, facing cons right in the middle of the square, had all of the cops just taking their billy clubs, shoving you this way, bumping you, hitting you in the throat, doing any damn thing just to get you out. I was black and blue here for months.
0: The first part of the RMA's plan worked. The stores did get restocked that morning, but instead of breaking the strike, this beatdown made the strike much, much bigger.
1: It wasn't bringing in strike breakers necessarily that started the general strike. We'd seen strike breakers, but the thing was using the police force that we were paying taxes for to beat us off our own streets. We couldn't even walk down the main street of Oakland. Now this is the first step toward fascism. That pistol
0: down, babe. Lay that pistol
1: it started with the
0: streetcar drivers. When they pulled up to the intersection and saw what was happening, they ripped the controls out of their cars and joined the strikers, who were beginning to regroup. Pretty soon, the streets were packed, and then the
5: jukeboxes came out. That's really where the, the 46 Oakland General Strike began. The streetcar drivers, the bus drivers, the truck drivers refusing to watch the strike against these women clerks be broken, and that just spread out like wildfire.
3: Every night bing and I'll woo you every day, I'll be your regular mama, and I'll put that gun away. I'll oh,
5: lay that pistol
2: down, babe, lay that pistol down, pistol packing mama, lay the thing down before it goes off and hurts somebody.
0: When the streetcar drivers decided to block the roads, and thousands of people rushed in to support them, they weren't acting on orders from the union hierarchy. So it wasn't officially a general strike at the beginning. Instead, they called it a work holiday.
5: You know, this work holiday, it was like a carnival, it was like a celebration, and people were just exercising their power, but there's a sense of euphoria in the process of doing it. So this is Monday. The Monday wasn't an official strike day. It took the labor officials that day to go into session, not involving many rank-and-file workers, and start having meetings. And the meetings went into the wee hours of the night, but they finally, probably under pressure knowing that the strike had already begun and they didn't want to tail behind it too much, declared that the strike officially began at 5 a.m. on Tuesday morning. So now Tuesday is December 3rd. So that's the first official day of the strike, but it's already in action.
0: That night, the biggest labor meeting in East Bay history took place at the Oakland Auditorium, which is now called the Kaiser Convention Center. There were 10,000 people crammed inside, and even though it was raining, another 5,000 outside, listening through loudspeakers. The crowd was pumped. One labor leader who spoke that night later said it felt like people were ready to march down to City Hall and take it apart. Brick by Brick.
1: Forever, forever, for
0: the
3: union makes us
0: but that wasn't at all what the AFL wanted. The union leaders, at least some of them, weren't really on the same page as a lot of the workers who actually, you know, created the strike. Let me back up for a second and explain something. The AFL wasn't the only big labor coalition at the time, there was also another group called the CIO, which stood for the Congress of Industrial Organizations. Now the AFL and CIO are merged into one group, but back then, the AFL was the more conservative of the two labor coalitions, and they didn't want to be associated with the CIO, which had a reputation for being farther left, more revolutionary, etc. So. Even though the CIO was willing to become part of the strike, which would have made the protests much bigger, the AFL was really hesitant about letting them get involved because they didn't want the media to demonize the strike as a communist plot. Remember, this is in the early days of the Cold War. But the AFL was being naive. The media was gonna associate the strike with communism, no matter how reasonable the unions acted. The workers in the streets, they knew
5: that. One of the most effective actions the strikers did is they set up picket lines in front of every newspaper in the East Bay. So they shut down the Nolans, the power brokers there, Oakland Tribune. In Oakland also, they put a picket line in front of Hearst's Post Inquirer, shut it down. They went to Alameda, picket line shut down the times Star. In Berkeley, they set up a picket line and shut down the Daily Gazette. And the Teamsters refused to bring the San Francisco Daily Papers across the bridge. So they didn't want the strike to be undermined because that had happened in 34 with the classic thing that still happens today that the strike was being created by outside agitators or reds or subversives of some, you know, kind of unsavory type, which they just fabricate.
0: The newspapers had a lot of help in their effort to undermine the strike from what might sound like an unexpected source, one of the most powerful union leaders, again, Eric Loomis. So
4: the Teamsters are a very complicated labor organization and they have long had a kind of leadership structure that is relatively decentralized. And what that means is that you can have big differences uh, between uh, different groups of Teamsters and the Teamsters in Oakland were quite, you know, on the ground, were quite supportive of the strike. right? And the Teamsters, you know, the Teamsters have in, especially at the rank and file level, um, a sense of solidarity that still, is, 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 still exists today. And they enforce that sense of solidarity. Uh, oftentimes, for instance, like there was a grocery store strike here in New England where I live uh, last year. And you know the Teamsters basically just stopped delivering groceries to the grocery store until they settled the strike. And that stuff can really matter. And so there was a lot of support For the general strike from the actual Teamsters living in Oakland. However, the head of the Teamsters was a guy named Dave Beck. And Dave Beck was a very, very conservative. And he was absolutely opposed to his union playing any role in this general strike.
0: Back in the beginning of this episode, the very first voice you heard was Stan Weir. He was the guy who talked about everybody dancing in Latham Square. Here's how Stan described the streets of Oakland during the strike. Quote, We had cordoned off downtown, maybe 20 blocks. There was a desire to do the right thing by everybody. There was no rousting anybody or anybody stealing gas from other people's cars or breaking in. So far as we could tell, those 54 hours were crimeless downtown. Meanwhile, according to top labor leaders who were in close negotiations with city elites, the Nolan machine saw what was happening in the streets and they were getting nervous. But we'll never know how close the unions got to a favorable settlement, because Dave Beck, the Teamsters boss, pulled the rug out from under the strikers.
4: Well, what ends up happening is that Beck orders the Teamsters in Oakland, off the strike. And when he does that, basically dooms it um, because that's the biggest organization, it's the most powerful and most organized uh, of all of these unions. Um, And so when Beck orders the Teamsters off off the strike, it's really hard for that strike to continue.
0: It wasn't just that Dave Beck ordered the truck drivers back to work. The statement he gave to the newspapers burned the strike to the ground.
4: Let me quote Dave Beck here um, about the strike. He said, quote, I say this damn general strike is nothing but a revolution. It isn't labor tactics, it's revolutionary tactics. And so this is, this is his view on this, even though it's not, even though it's not that revolutionary, it's, it's not being controlled by revolutionary groups. And isn't it had just been able to go on a little bit longer you probably would have seen the other labor federation, the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, their unions join that general strike, and who knows what a few more days could have accomplished in Oakland.
0: Looking back on the strike, 30 years after it ended, Joe Shoday was still bitter.
1: Number one, when I talk about Dave Beck, who are you talking about? You're talking about a man that made millions, went to prison and everything else. He never rep- really represented these unions. I mean, uh, uh, the, the way it should be represented. Uh, here they were, the greatest uh, uh, organization of, of people. And, and, and uh, Beck was, a, but, well, uh, I think that some of the uh, retail merchants associations got a hold of Beck. And then he started putting the juice on them.
0: This particular allegation of bribery was never proven. But Dave Beck did end up in a high-profile racketeering and embezzlement scandal a few years later. Uh, Did some time for tax fraud, was partly responsible for getting the Teamsters kicked out of the AFL due to corruption. Oh, and on his way out the door, he passed control to his underling, a guy you may have heard of, Jimmy Hoffa. Anyway, the idea of Dave Beck backstabbing the strike as part of some kind of secret side deal isn't too far-fetched. But even without the conspiracy theory, The fact remains that the single man most responsible for ending the strike was a union leader. Once again, the left was divided and conquered. At 11 a.m. Thursday, December 5th, 1946, the general strike officially came to an end. But the workers at the two department stores were still out on strike.
5: They signed a deal. The deal was awful. They only settled the strike on one condition that the police wouldn't be used to break strikes again that wasn't upheld. So it was a kind of a betrayal. Yet, Thursday at 10.30, the strike officially ended. The retail clerks didn't have settlement. The Teamsters weren't about to go back to strike. Um, as it continued, the strike could settle for another six months.
0: Even though the retail clerks didn't get their union,
5: their action
0: threw a monkey wrench into the gears of the Nolan machine. Remember how I said earlier about how the publisher of the Oakland Tribune pretty much ran the town? In the next election after the strike, five labor-backed candidates challenged this Republican stronghold. And four out of the five won seats on the city council. The only candidate from this more progressive slate who lost was Ben Goldfarb. So the theory is that his Jewish last name cost him the race. The Oakland Tribune had been running editorials with headlines like, quote, Oakland depicted as testing ground in effort to secure communistic control. So, yeah, the red baiting, which was heavily laced with anti Semitism wasn't exactly subtle. Goldfarb still only lost by one point, by the way. Unfortunately, the other four liberal candidates who did win, they didn't last very long on city council. Once again, the left was divided and conquered. But this time, the wedge issue was race. The reformers made the fatal mistake of supporting more public housing, which was urgently needed in Oakland because of all the people that migrated here during the war years. But it wasn't hard for a coalition of landlords and other big real estate interests to whip up a very effective backlash.
4: Sadly enough, again, as race often interferes in America with this stuff, when the reform candidates, they had elected the city council pushed forward a public housing plan in 1950 that would have increased, you know, housing for black residents of Oakland. They face a recall campaign uh, that plenty of workers themselves are willing to support uh, because it's, it's quite often in American history that American white workers have placed their racial identity over their class identity.
0: Okay, I know this episode is turning into a pretty big downer. But I've got to tell you about one more bad thing before we get to some maybe good news. There was also a disastrous reaction to the Oakland General Strike and all those other strikes that happened in 1946 at the national level.
4: You see the passage of a bill in Congress in 1947 called the Taft-Hartley Act. And what the Taft-Hartley Act does is it basically bans a large number of the tactics that the labor movement had used in the previous 15 years to win such as general strikes right so you it became illegal for you as a uh, as say so you were working on the job and you had a union contract at your uh, area of employment right and your neighbor uh, walked off the job and you wanted to support them like happened in Oakland Well that becomes illegal. Right? If you're under contract, you don't have the right to, to strike if you just want to. Right? You have to go through a process, a series of reasons, etc. So it bans things like a general strike. It bans, uh, you know, mass boycotts. It bans what's called secondary picketing, uh, you know, which is, is basically unions coming out and, and shutting things down in, in order to, to help other workers.
0: Describing the Oakland general strike in his book... Eric Loomis says, quote, This seemingly small action turned into the biggest challenge to corporate domination of American workers in the post-war years. End quote. The Taft-Hartley Act was the ruling class's response to this challenge. It criminalized workers' most effective tool, solidarity. Union membership hit a high point in the mid-1940s. About a third of American workers... That percentage has been dropping ever since. But just because Taft-Hartley is still on the books and probably won't be repealed anytime soon doesn't mean there are no options.
2: I,
4: I think that one thing about a general strikes is that there, there's an old you know, adage that it's only illegal if you, you, know, if you get caught. And the, the fact of the matter is is that workers had a lot of power. And we've seen this in the last few years where workers have engaged or threatened to engage in actions that are technically illegal, but have won. So if you look at the teacher strikes, for instance, uh, in, uh, in 2018, especially uh, a lot of those were in States where it was actually illegal for them to do so Um, in West Virginia and in Oklahoma, you really sort of states, and they're able to go and engage in what is in fact an illegal strike, because who's going to fire them, right? They have the power. Where is the state of West Virginia going to find however many thousands of teachers that are willing to move there to teach seven-year-olds in poor schools? They don't exist.
0: Some of the biggest victories ever won by unions happened in the wake of the Gilded Age. Economic inequality had gotten so far out of whack back then that even the elites knew If they didn't start treating workers a little better, there might be a revolution, and it wouldn't be pretty. People are calling our time, now, the new Gilded Age, because of today's astronomical wealth gap. Maybe the end of our Gilded Age will have a similar conclusion, and workers will finally win some of those rights back. Or maybe they'll win even more this time.
4: If there's a lesson that can be taken from a strike like this, a small, ultimately, you know, within the larger context of America and labor movement, you know, a small number of workers um, in a couple of department stores that blows up like this. I think that the lesson is that we live in a world today uh, where it seems like we face these problems that are just intractable. You have climate change, you have income inequality, you have the rise of fascism in America, terrible, terrible things that are happening. Um, However, history is full of moments where things seem hopeless, really, and, you know, or, or, or just the struggle is going to go on forever um, and maybe never win. And yet we see these moments where small actions can explode into world changing events, um, you know, and something like the Oakland general strike, even if it didn't succeed, the fact that it was such an intense challenge to corporate domination is really remarkable in its own way. We see this all the time. There's no particular reason why a single act of resistance against the police oppression of gay people in New York City in 1969 at the Stonewall Inn would be the spark that would lead to the growth of the gay rights movement. There'd been lots of police beatings of gay people over the over the decades and over the centuries, but yet this moment this piece of resistance happened at a particular time and place where people paid attention and began to act on it and built this powerful political movement that has led to an incredible amount of equality today, uh, even compared to what existed 25 years ago, forget about 50. And so we see this over and over again. And all of these little fights, you never know what, this, what is going to, to spark a fire that transforms America, and and you know, and I think that that's that's one takeaway from this Oakland General Strike.
2: If the road gets rough and rocky, and the hills get steep and high, we will sing as we go marching, and we'll win one big union by and by. Brothers, Brother's gotta join that one big union Brother's, Brothers gotta Wanda join Wanda. it by
0: himself. Thank and you so here. much for listening to this Wanda episode Wanda of East Bay Wanda Yesterday. Wanda I've Wanda been your host, Wanda Wanda Liam O'Donoghue. Today's show is dedicated to the memories of the workers who participated in the 1946 Oakland General Strike, especially those whose voices you heard in the archival interviews featured in this episode. Stan Weir, Eve Schaff, Al Kitter, and Joe Shoday. Thank you to LaborFest and KPFA Radio for recording those interviews and preserving the memory of this struggle. I also want to thank Chris Romberg, the Oakland Wiki and everyone who contributes to it, the Oakland Museum of California, FoundSF, you can find them at foundsf.org and libcom.org. As always, you can see images related to this episode at my site, eastbayyesterday.com. And while you're there, click the donate link to help keep this show alive. Or you can subscribe to my newsletter if you wanna stay up to date on uh, other local history news. And uh, you can also click those social media links if you wanna see me popping up in your feeds with uh, various East Bay history related trivia. Uh, But for real, shout out to all of you Patreon supporters. It's been a rough year, and I couldn't have gotten through it without you. You're the best. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please tell someone else to check it out. Or just, you know, grab your friend's phone while they're not looking and subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on their podcast app. Either way, I'll be happy. Uh, Music for this episode came from Pete Seeger. Woody Guthrie, Glenn Miller, Bing Crosby, and the Andrew Sisters, and the Underscore Orchestra. The theme song music came from Anatech. Thanks again for listening.
5: I'll be back soon with more stories of East Bay yesterday.